Good afternoon and welcome to this Euractive online event, which is kindly supported by GE. I'm Frédéric Simon, the Energy and Environment Editor of Euractive, and I will be your host for today's event titled The Role of Gas in Europe's Future Energy Mix and the Transition to Zero Carbon of Europe's Power Sector. Today's discussion on gas comes at a particular juncture for Europe. Only a couple of weeks ago, the EU agreed new climate objectives for 2050 and 2030. And in the meantime, countries like Poland and Germany are both planning an increase in the amount of gas they use to replace polluting coal power plants. But even though fossil gas is cleaner than coal, it also needs to be phased out eventually to meet Europe's climate goals. So how is the European Union planning for this transition? And how is the private sector adapting to this changing environment? To discuss this topic today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Maria Spiraki, a Greek member of the European Parliament for the EPP Group, Jan Ingersen from ENSOG, the Association of Gas Transmission Operators, Martin O'Neill, Vice President of GE Gas Power, and Jonathan Stern from the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies. Welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us today. We'll start this virtual conference with some short opening statements from the speakers, and then we'll move on to a Q&A session that uh, will also include questions from the audience. But before we get started, let me first pass the floor to our special guest, Mrs. Ditte Jules Jorgensen, Director General at the European Commission's Energy Department, who will give us a keynote speech. Mrs. Jorgensen, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, and thank you to your for the invitation to speak today on the important topic of the role of gas in the future energy system and in the energy uh, transition. And what I would like to do is to say a bit about the role of gas in the transition first, and then look at what does it mean in terms of investments and, and the need to avoid stranded infrastructure for the, for the future. Um, as you just mentioned, uh, Frédéric, just recently the European co-legislators reached agreement on the climate law, uh, agreeing to achieve a 55% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Um, and so that means that what was before, what was earlier a, a political engagement and at the highest level of, of the heads of state and government in, in December agreed to the 2050 and the 55 objectives, that has now also become a legal requirement uh, and one that helps frame uh, our, our work forward as part of the energy transition under the European Green Deal. Um, we, uh, of course, want to achieve these, uh, these uh, targets in a way that is uh, responsible and cost-effective, making sure that it also supports our economic growth, our competitiveness, creation of jobs uh, and investment, and therefore the European Green Deal and our, and our objectives of 55% reduction in 2030 and climate neutrality should be seen very much uh, in combination with the next generation EU, the big investment program to recover and, and, and build resilience of the European uh, economy. And it also means that all policy areas, all possible instruments should, should contribute to this uh, Green Deal target of climate neutrality and, and a 50, 55% reduction. Uh, and they will be doing that under the, under the heading Fit for 55. Um, so the Commission is currently preparing a set of legislative proposals uh, that will help drive this, this transition. And because energy, energy consumption, energy production represent about 75% of our total greenhouse gas emissions, it's clear that we need to take action in the energy sector and, and that the energy sector, our energy policy, really are among the key contributors to, to this Fit for 55 package. Uh, very concretely, in the summer, we will present, uh, we plan to present two energy-related proposals, 
one on renewable energy, one on energy efficiency. And then later in the year, we aim to present proposals to reduce the uh, methane emissions, the methane leak linked to, linked to energy production, uh, but also uh, to present proposals on the energy performance of buildings and on hydrogen and decarbonization of the European gas markets. So very, uh, very much linked to today's topic. This is, of course, part of a much bigger package that also addresses energy uh, taxation, uh, carbon border adjustment measures, uh, the emissions trading scheme and, and, and many other things in different sectors, including the transport sector as well. And what we see in the energy system is that we're going to need, first of all, a more integrated energy system, because a more integrated energy system is more effective, more efficient. There are savings in that through the circularity and through making best use of what we have, including what is otherwise waste energy. Uh, we have set forward a strategy on, on, on energy system integration. We're going to need to electrify more, and we're going to need that electrification in particular to come from renewable energy. So we really need to double the installed capacity of renewables over the coming decade. And then we need greater energy efficiency. If we don't consume less, it's going to be very, very difficult to meet our targets. Uh, and we have currently an aim of 32.5% improvement in energy efficiency by 2030. And that would probably have to move upwards. And again, we have the renovation wave. We have the investment in the next generation EU to support achieving that, that target. And so in this context, the obvious question and the one you have put for us today is really what is the role of gas in the energy transition? In the European energy system currently, gas, fossil gas, natural gas, plays a, an important role and is an, a necessary part of the energy mix at this point in time for some of uh, European member states more than others, but gas is an important part. It's also clear that when we look at the energy transition ahead of us towards 2030, first of all, uh, gas, um, including natural gas or fossil gas, will, will have an important role in this uh, transition. First of all, we have a number of gas power plants. You mentioned some member states that, that look to gas to step up their power uh, generation. They are uh, a source of flexibility and stability in the system. Um, and they do they can help replacing more polluting fuels such as coal and, and oil. Um, but what we do see over time is that that natural gas in the power system really should be replaced with renewable energy and also low carbon gases. And I'll come back to that. And then there is the important role of gas in the switch from coal. Um, for some, in some situations, in some circumstances, natural gas uh, is really almost necessary or at least very useful for countries that want to step out of coal and possibly uh, accelerate the phase out of coal. Um, and, uh, and natural gas, even though a fossil gas and even though uh, rich in, 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 in emissions, it is a cleaner source from a climate perspective than, for example, coal and lignite. Um, but this has to be looked at on a case by case. In some situations, it makes sense. It's the best way forward. In other situations, we really risk having an investment into something that could become a stranded asset um, and, and that would actually stand in the way of a shift directly from coal to renewable energy. So it has to be a case by case shift uh, out of coal. Um, if we look at it in the longer term, and here I'm looking beyond 2030 and more in the time towards 2050, it's clear that fossil gas is not really part of the longer term solution. Um, and certainly in 2050, we would not see a role for unabated uh, fossil gas in our, in our system. Um, what we are currently estimating is that the total consumption of of gases, fuels, so not just uh, natural or fossil gas, but also decarbonized gas, in 2050 will be more or less comparable to what it is in 2030, but that it should be a shift away from uh, from, from from fossil gas 
to low carbon or clean gases. So quite a, a, a shift there and a shift that will require quite a significant technological transformation uh, to get there. So more investment into innovation, into technology, research and development, and really strengthening our capacity and our competitiveness uh, in those sectors. And um, so what we see is a very a longer term potential for the decarbonized gases. Um, renewable hydrogen, I think, is probably the best example. We have launched a hydrogen strategy really to, to accelerate, to, to scale up the European uh, electrolyzer capacity and the renewable uh, hydrogen capacity, because we can see there are some sectors where it will be very difficult to electrify, where you're going to need the energy in the form of molecules, so in gases form, and there hydrogen uh, can be the, the energy carrier that can replace a fossil or, or, or natural gas. And that would in particular be some of the heavy industries, steel, cement, for example, where electrification would be more tricky and, uh, and expensive. It can also be some of the long distance uh, transport. It could be air transport. It could be some of the maritime transport. Uh, whereas there are other uses where electrification is actually both the more energy efficient, uh, but also the more cost competitive uh, option there. So uh, we need to look at where in, in what sectors for what uses uh, is, is gas um, actually relevant also for the future. Um, because we are going to need some form of gas in our energy system in, in, uh, in the future, we of course need to look at our infrastructure needs both to make sure that we don't invest in, in what would become stranded assets, but also to make sure that we invest in what are we going to need for these large scale rollout of clean hydrogen, uh, for example. Um, and a couple of points here. One is the funding side of things. Uh, this, of course, will require investments both from the public and the private side. And the public side, um, what we are doing at European level is uh, that there is a commitment to spend 30% of our seven year budget on climate related uh, investments but also importantly, 37% of the next generation EU, the recovery and resilience facility should go to climate related investments. And of course, a lot of that will go into the energy sector. Um, our view from the commission here is that there are very limited and specific circumstances where natural gas projects could be eligible for this type of investments. Uh, I mentioned before, in some cases where you really need gas to step out of coal, um, and, and there are some specific circumstances where that would, would be the case. Uh, but obviously, these are not the in, in first line when it comes to climate related uh, investments. Um, as I mentioned, private investments will be very important. And here, the EU taxonomy uh, rules um, are important in terms of guidance of what constitutes uh, green investment. The Commission has just presented a delegated act and, and will look at uh, the follow up uh, to that through the, through the adoption process. Um, so that was the funding. Um, I mentioned infrastructure, and I just want to say a few words about infrastructure as well, uh, because we're going to need to adapt our infrastructure to make sure that it's uh, future-proof, that the investments are future-proof, to make sure that we retrofit or adapt our infrastructure so that it can be used to clean energy, to, for clean gas, for hydrogen, for example. What we have done here is to put forward a proposal for a revision of our um, regulation on trans-European networks, um, really trying to align our infrastructure cross-border investment with the European Green Deal and with the decarbonisation of the of the energy sector, also in the field of uh, infrastructure uh, investment. Our proposal there from the Commission is that it would not that there is no need for further cross-border gas uh, investments, and so our proposal is that they that these projects should not be eligible for EU funding under the Trans-European Network Regulation. This is currently with the co-legislators, so uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, uh, work uh, closely with both the European Parliament and Council to, uh, to bring that across. 
And the other point about infrastructure is that uh, obviously we need to make sure that we have sufficient investment into the cleaner infrastructure. I mentioned uh, adaptation or retrofitting for clean gas, but of course also any infrastructure needed for renewable production or, or, or clean hydrogen, green hydrogen production through electrolyzers. And then we need to make sure that our infrastructure also allows us to tap into what is a more locally produced renewable or low carbon gases such as biogas or biomethane. So some of the of the grid planning has to take into uh, has to take that into account. So those are some of our some of the work that is ongoing at European level, some of the proposals, some of the specific initiatives uh, that indicates uh, the, the future of uh, of gas, clean gas in particular, but also the role of fossil gas uh, in the coming decade uh, as part of the as part of the energy uh, transition. So I look forward to answering questions uh, now. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Mr. Jorgensen, uh, for for this uh, good uh, overview of all the things that are happening currently at the European Commission, and it's uh, indeed a very busy agenda um, uh, that you have right now. Um, so, a couple of follow-up questions, uh, if I may, um, and one returning on something that you uh, alluded to. And the, the European Commission has recognized the role of gas as a transition uh, technology in the power sector, especially when it displaces coal. Uh, but Mr. Timmermans uh, has said that this can only happen for a very limited period of time. So uh, essentially, how does the Commission intend to manage this transition? How can the regulators find the, the right balance between short-term uh, support for gas, or at least not hindering uh, gas in the short term during this transition, while avoiding investments becoming stranded assets uh, potentially 10 years down the line? Thank you. Well, I think, um, first of all, it links into the, to the national energy planning. So each member state has presented a national energy and climate plan for how to achieve the current uh, climate and energy targets for 2030, uh, which each of them strives to find an own local or national balance for how do they best achieve these, these targets. And that gives you an indication of how far can each member state take it in terms of scaling up renewables uh, or phasing out coal, these, these issues are covered, or the role of gas. Um, and I think it's important to refer to the national plans because there are different national circumstances. There are some member states uh, that have currently 70%, one member state that has currently about 70% of coal in its uh, in its power mix. There are others that have much, much lower, below, below 5%. And so clearly different circumstances, different considerations in terms of how to achieve the climate and, and, and energy targets. So there's the national uh, planning in, in the national energy and, uh, and climate plans. And then we have uh, at, at European level, we have done what we call the climate target plan that we adopted, that the commission adopted in, in autumn last year, which sets out the broader pathway towards achieving the 55% in 2030. And would really lays down the foundation for the whole Fit for 55 package, but also the foundation for the decision by heads of state and government to agree on, uh, on, on a 55% target in 2030. And the climate target plan at a macro level, at a European level, um, assesses what are the best ways to achieve the targets, what is required in each of the different policy instruments, including in the field um, of energy. So if you look at that together with what we call our longer term strategy, looking at 2050, you will get an idea of European level, a European level assessment of the role of the different energy sources uh, in the system. 
And so if you look at the national plans, if you look at the European Climate Target Plan, you will see that the energy mix in the next 10 year will consist or, or will be um, will, will give will provide for a higher level of renewable energy uh, investments into uh, solar photovoltaic investments into wind. Um, it will rely on hydrogen as an energy carrier, so investments that are uh, investments into electrolyzers and to setting up the whole ecosystem around and the market around the hydrogen. But it will also rely on gas over the coming ten years. Um, with the revision of the TENI regulation, we also hope to strengthen the, the selection criteria, the considerations, so that when any project is assessed, it will be assessed in terms of how does it align with the agreed criteria in the regulation. And hopefully, if the Commission proposal goes through, that will also mean an assessment in terms of alignment with the Green Deal and no further funding for, for natural gas or, or fossil gas. Okay, thanks. Um, you you spoke about infrastructure um, and the need as well to invest into new infrastructure or to refurbish potentially existing infrastructure uh, for for new types of decarbonized gases or, or hydrogen. Um, have you identified at the Commission the kind of missing links uh, in the infrastructure uh, that we have at the moment? And when it comes to the evaluation of the national plans. Um, how will the Commission um, evaluate, you know, what, for example, when it comes to hydrogen, the, the, the kinds of infrastructure projects that will be eligible uh, for, for funding and those which are unlikely uh, to, uh, to win approval? How do you make the distinction between those two? Thank you. Well, first of all, in, in terms of the assessment of the infrastructure needs, our assessment is uh, that, uh, or our analysis shows, that we are, we have the infrastructure we need uh, for cross-border gas. Over the last decade, we have made very significant investments into uh, infrastructure for gas. We have built a number, we have invested, we have funded a number of LNG terminals in member states to help diversify our supply. Uh, we have invested in cross-border infrastructure for gas. So very significant investments over the last decade. And these investments have been really important also for security of supply. We have diversified, we have more different suppliers than we than we had uh, 10 years ago. Some member states were completely dependent on one supplier 10 years ago, and that has been uh, that has been improved uh, significantly. So very big investments in gas over the last decade. That means that where we are now is that from an energy security perspective, we actually don't need more investment into cross-border gas infrastructure. And that's of course the reason for the our proposal for the Trans-European Network regulation being what it is, that the analysis shows there's not a need for more. So in other words, when we, when we get into the stage of um, assessing different infrastructure projects, um, if then once the new 10 years, we call it regulation, has been adopted, well then if our proposal goes through, there would not actually be a need for gas projects, but we would be looking at other projects that would strengthen the infrastructure for clean gas, as I said, so retrofitting, uh, linked to um, uh, and electrolyzers, or grids that can combine the different parts of the energy system, again, to come back to this integrated energy system that is so important for us to achieve uh, our objectives. We need, we need to connect, for example, uh, large-scale photovoltaic or offshore wind, to, um, to electrolyzer capacity, and then we need to link that capacity into the necessary infrastructure to, uh, to, to transport um, hydrogen into our system. 
Um, so, but that that would be in the future under the the next 10e. We're currently looking. We're currently, of course, operating within the with the current 10e, um, and and applying the criteria that are there currently. But the, the next one should be under the new regulatory framework that aligns with the European Green Deal. Okay, thanks for for that. So, uh, to to conclude, maybe uh, one question uh, about methane. Um, uh, the European Commission, um, Mrs. von der Leyen, in fact, uh, said the 2020s will need to be the decade of action uh, on climate. Uh, basically, there's a sense of urgency to, to, to act uh, quickly. Uh, but the regulatory action when it comes to methane um, is not going as quickly uh, because there are some measurement problems and, and that has been acknowledged uh, by the by the commission's uh, methane strategy so how looking forward how do you think can uh, the commission try to speed things up are you considering for example um, uh, having specific discussions on methane with countries like russia or the united states to, to try and accelerate things Thank you very much. I'm glad you asked about methane because it's such an important part of the overall strategy uh, and to link it into to the topic of uh, of the role of gas in the transition. It's clear that it for gas to have a real role in transition. The first thing we need to do is to address the methane, uh, the methane emissions, which is such an important part of, of fossil of fossil energy and, and fossil gas. So an absolutely central element of the overall strategy. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It stays shorter in, in, in the atmosphere, uh, but it has a very significant effect. So in other words, if we can cut it quickly, if we can reduce it quickly, we can also see a fairly quick impact in terms of uh, in terms of climate change. So a really important um, uh, objective. Uh, you mentioned our methane strategy that the Commission adopted in autumn, and that will be followed up by a, a legislative proposal, a regulatory proposal uh, later this year to essentially uh, regulate this within the European Union. But as you also alluded to, the, the biggest issue for the European Union and methane is actually an international issue. It's from the exporters. Most of the methane linked to our energy consumption, it takes place outside the European Union. So we need to work with the producers, with suppliers, with exporters to address this uh, in, a, in a comprehensive manner. And um, the first thing we need to do, and you've also alluded to that, really is to make sure that we have the information and the data, the facts to to base ourselves on. And, and with that in mind, we are working with the um, with a to set up an, a, a methane observatory, a methane emission observatory that can help put together the necessary data. UNEP is is involved in this, and the hope is that that could become that that could really become a um, uh, a catalyst or bring together the necessary data and transparency around uh, methane, not just here, but but really globally. Um, and in addition to that, uh, we are working with the oil and gold the methane partnership. And then, uh, as you also suggested, uh, we need to work internationally with partners, with our main uh, suppliers. And the way we approach it in the methane strategy is to recognize that we need to take action ourselves. Uh, we need to be ready to do as much as we can within the European Union to limit methane emissions, uh, but also recognizing that we need to work with suppliers so that we make sure that we don't import methane as part of our energy import. Um, so we very much hope to engage engage partners. Um, methane and the need to address methane has uh, is receiving um, a lot of uh, attention also in the UN 
in context. And so our hope is really that there will be a multilateral path going forward, in addition, of course, to bilateral dialogues and, and, um, and engagement and cooperation with our, with our uh, suppliers. So that's the path forward for us. The, the data gathering at international level, our own regulatory framework, work with partners bilaterally with suppliers and hopefully a, a clear multilateral track to take this forward. All right. Thank you very much, Mrs. Jorgensen, uh, for your time um, and, and the uh, uh, sharing your thoughts with us today. We hope to see you again very soon uh, at one uh, of our upcoming events uh, at your active. Have a very good day. Thank you for the invitation. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Um, so uh, we can now move on uh, to uh, the opening statements uh, from uh, our panelists. And so uh, let's start straight away with Martin O'Neill, who will uh, quickly present a, uh, a white paper that uh, GE is publishing today about the role of gas in the transition to net zero emissions. Um, Martin O'Neill, the floor is yours. I think we cannot see the image, but we do have the sound. Martin, are you with us? I'm with you, Fred. Good morning. We can hear you fine, so you can go ahead. Okay, thank you very much. So, leading the way to a... a obviously, G is cited by the European Support Climate Neutrality by 2050. And really here, the thrust of the white paper that we're releasing today is about the fundamental role that gas plays in the transition. Um, as a force multiplier for renewables, as much as a resilient, available technology that's in our hands today that will support the grid through the energy transition. Obviously, the threats of climate change that are upon us and the need to really act over the next decade, we see this as a decade of action. And our white paper begins to lay out the many areas where GE and its full portfolio of products, not just gas, gas turbine power generation, what we refer to as gas power, but also the combination of with renewables, with transmission and distribution investments can accelerate massively the decarbonization of energy generation and, and production. So flipping to the second slide, um, just looking at that, really the thrust of our, our position here today that we're very keen to discuss is that reducing CO2 emissions for us is an area under the curve problem. And I think that we need to keep that central in the debate. Greenhouse gas reduction is a climate change, the issue. Therefore, really deploying the technologies that we have in our hands is of vital importance. We must act now. And that means that at the same time, there is a very buoyant discussion about future decarbonization pathways around us. Gas power is central because it is a force multiplier for the deployment of renewables, and it gives us dependable, resilient, dispatchable power that means that when we are retiring coal and nuclear assets, active power, synchronous assets that give grid stability, the role of gas in replacing coal 
particularly, in itself has been the single largest contributor to decarbonisation in the last two decades. And we want to see that continue. At the same time, the firm, dependable, dispatchable capacity afforded by gas turbine power generation means that we can actually accelerate the addition of variable renewable sources onto the grid at the same time that we stage infrastructure investments to support VRE, variable renewable energy um, amplification. The other point that I would make that really echoes the, uh, the keynote speech there is, I think different EU member states are starting at very different points and accepting that, that gas turbine power generation is a critical path to decarbonisation. I think it's important that we continue to incentivise appropriately what we're doing with gas turbine power generation um, so that particularly southeastern Europe, eastern Europe, areas that perhaps have a higher um, carbon dioxide intensity in power generation, we can really decarbonise rapidly by retiring coal and accelerating that path. The discussion of gas turbine power generation as a bridging technology is also something that I think we should be definitely discussing. There is a real path either through um, biomethane, renewable natural gas, and also hydrogen, and immediately with carbon capture and sequestration to massively decarbonize gas turbine power generation, which really provokes the question about policy and incentives and mechanisms that we wish to debate, discuss, influence, and create that actually allows us to get after that area under the curve problem that I framed up in the beginning, getting after CO2 emissions immediately rather than waiting perhaps for more perfect technologies that might not be available to us at scale maybe 10, 15, or even 20 years out. So the major thrust of our white paper and the reason that we're excited to talk today is to really lay out those points for debate and to really start thinking about policy design and financial instruments that we need to advance the role of gas turbine power generation, not just as a transition technology or a bridging fuel, but as a destination technology where deep decarbonization is possible in the 2030 period and beyond with hydrogen, with syngas, with RNG, and with carbon capture and sequestration. But we need to act now. Those instruments, those policies, and those discussions to be top of mind, it's the decade of action now for us to be able to realize that future and have a dependable, resilient, and reliable grid of the future. Thank you. Thanks, Martin O'Neill. Um, and so let me turn now to Maria Spiraki. Thank you. Good afternoon to all of you from the European Parliament. Can you hear me? We can hear you fine. Go ahead. Okay, thank you very much. Well, a very short statement concerning the white paper because I think it is it is important to, to explain that, uh, first of all, we have to take into account the different national plans and the different pace on decarbonization when it comes to the member states. And I come from a member state, Greece, which is one of the front runners in decarbonization, but we need gas 
not only as, as a transitional fuel, but as an instrument, but we will finally succeed the smooth transition from uh, shutting down our coal plants into renewables. And in this regard, I would like to state just in four aspects that we can elaborate further. The first one is the issue of studying assets, the, the issue of assets. Well, you know that the, the, the main issue we face in, on the areas, one of them is the Western Macedonia, the region of Western Macedonia, is that there are no local uh, infrastructure concerning gas. And we have to replace the infrastructure uh, that uh, they are supporting the old lignite plants for for heating and cooling to the to the householders, so it is important to have local infrastructure for for our, our, for gas for natural gas, and there is no no European funding for for this issue for this framework. And in this regard, I think that we have to reconsider or how can we support the local infrastructure for natural gas. And at the same time, when it comes to the 10E regulation and to 10E revision, we have to take into account uh, on the cost that the, the new infrastructure, when it comes to green hydrogen, are costing. And we have to, to focus on the repurposing and retrofitting the, infra the existing infrastructure. The second issue that I would like to, to, to touch is on how can we decarbonizing gas and how can we, we use gas not only until 2030. And it is important to understand that when it comes to, to hydrogen, we need a, a huge quantities of hydrogen. And the, the existing infrastructures and the infrastructure that are proceeding are not enough to provide us with the, the quantity of green hydrogen until 2024, which is tomorrow, but also until 2030. So by saying this, I insist on, on decarbonizing gas. And I think that we have to take into account the way that we, we will establish and provide to the industry CCS and CCU installation. I'm fully supportive on CCS and CCU installation, especially when it comes to install them in, in hubs, in, in, in areas that, that, that the industry is working on. And I also insist that we have to provide safe and secure solutions for the citizens. And in this regard, we have a lot of, of working examples coming from Norway and the Netherlands. The third issue is methane, and allow me to speak as, as a, the rapporteur on behalf of the parliament on the INEA report on methane strategy. One of the main issues that we have to tackle is on reducing methane emissions from third countries by regulating imports, and I insist on this. We need to regulate imports and to provide a different technology to eliminate leaks in the transportation process. And fourth, but not last, is the pricing of CO2. I think that uh, uh, according to, to, to the Bloomberg today, it, it is a today's report, carbon pricing hits 50 euros per metric ton. So it is important to understand that we need a, a, a faith and fair carbon prices. At the same time, I insist and I am fully supportive to the Commission direction, but we need far uh, carbon prices instead of having detailed regulation. We need to provide the markets all the, industry, all, the, all the instruments that they have to work on. And it is important for us to understand that the legislation is a locomotive. We set the schemes with Green Deal in terms of the, of the growth roadmap. We set the schemes on sustainable investments. It is now the turn of the markets. Okay, thank you, Maria Spiraki. Uh, let me turn now to Jan Igorsen from NSOG. Hello, and thank you very much, uh, Frederick, for the invitation. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. And and I think it's, it is so refreshing to hear now uh, and, and to hear the acknowledgement that 
uh, it's not a matter of electricity or gas. It's a matter of both. Of course, electricity will be an important uh, energy vector in the future, uh, maybe plus 50%, but uh, still gas will be, uh, uh, will be a part of the future and uh, will, of course, have to decarbonize, whether it's then by biogas or uh, hydrogen or uh, abating, uh, abating natural gas, whatever technology. Um, all technologies will need to be applied on equal footing and on uh, and be applied on what can they deliver and what can, what do they cost. Let me remind you that today um, um, the the electricity is around plus twenty percent, of, of which maybe twenty percent, maybe less, fifteen twenty percent is uh, wind and solar. In, in gas, it's of course not the case yet, but the example of Denmark and Sweden achieving already between 15 and 20% of uh, biogas in, in the gas system is a proof that this, uh, this is possible. The infrastructure, the gas infrastructure is neutral. It will be able to carry um, both biomethane uh, abated natural gas and, uh, and hydrogen and uh, it, also, more importantly, even that it can do it in an efficient manner. The newly uh, report, recent report from Europe Backbone indicates a cost of one quarter of repurposed uh, existing gas pipelines compared to new, uh, new constructions. So it will be an efficient um, uh, way of transporting, in particular, transporting long haul if, uh, to the extent that is needed. Uh, Two-thirds of the future uh, hydrogen infrastructure uh, will, according to uh, European Hydrogen Backbone, be existing gas infrastructure and uh, repurposed, retrofitted. And uh, we are very pleased to hear that uh, this is also being recognized. We have seen that now in the 10E proposal um, by the Commission, where also the, it has been suggested that ENSOC uh, should include hydrogen uh, in our infrastructure planning. And I'm happy to say that we are already doing that. Um, we have in the, in the recent uh, TYDP 2020 draft report, we have included um, 75 uh, energy transition projects, including hydrogen projects. And that is even before we have the, the new 10E. So, so we are already doing this. Um, I think also the conclusion, the overall conclusion uh, of the new 10E 2020 is pretty much in line uh, with Mr. Jorgensen. Mrs. Jorgensen said uh, here before that the uh, European gas infrastructure is uh, robust and uh, is sufficient, in particular when we finish uh, the already ongoing projects. That is the case, that is also our conclusions. Um, we are pointing out a few places maybe that is also related to what Mrs. Jorgensen calls the case-by-case the -case basis, where it might still be needed with the infrastructure for, uh, for coal-to-gas switch or oil-to-gas switch. So uh, very, very pleased to hear that. Um, we think that the gas TSOs will play an important role, uh, not only as owners of a big part of the future infra uh, infrastructure for hydrogen, but also in the technical uh, capacities, technical expertise, the operational expertise, the regulatory uh, situation, the economic, the ownership of the pipelines already, and not at least in approvals, right-of-ways, and safety issues where we are already there. 
And um, that brings me to my, my uh, last point, that um, we are call, all agreeing on that what we need is sector integration or system integration in the energy sector. In particular, there has been a focus on electricity and gas uh, sector integration, which I think for good reasons. Uh, we do also think that gas and hydrogen should be integrated, and therefore we are calling for a merged regulation of gas and hydrogen, uh, not at least because two-thirds of the future hydrogen infrastructure will be uh, owned, uh, will be is today owned by the, the gas TSOs. Of course, respecting the regulatory framework, the regulatory requirements. So we are looking forward to, to see um, the, the package that uh, Mrs. Jorgensen uh, indicated. Happy to hear the support for continued role for, for gas, also from Mrs. Mrs. Spiraki. Very good to hear that this support is there. We will do our utmost uh, at ENSOC uh, to um, live up to the responsibilities to pave the way to facilitate the decarbonization of the gas grids. Thank you. Thanks, Jan uh, Ingersen. Uh, let me turn now to our last speaker, and that's Jonathan Stone from the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure to be here. Very interesting to hear the remarks that have been made so far. So I think all of our speakers, and certainly most of the literature, agrees that the next 10 years for gas are, are probably relatively positive, even for um, unabated gas. Uh, we will see some uh, reduction in demand in order to meet targets towards the end of the decade. This will be different in different countries. Some countries will see an increase because of the coal switch. Um, but really, for me, what this means is that the gas industry, as it stands today, has most of this decade to really get its act together to progress the kind of technologies that people have been talking about here. And in particular, um, the technologies of hydrogen, uh, carbon capture, everyone is tremendously keen on these technologies. Everyone agrees they are the technologies of the future, um, both in relation to uh, renewables, but also to gas. The problem I see is that although everyone is extremely keen, we're not entirely certain where this money is coming from. So we've heard about the tremendous amount of money that's available from Brussels. But when I look at the amount of discussion that we've had over the last 10 years about carbon capture and storage and what we've achieved, this is not encouraging. And if it wasn't for the Norwegian government and Norwegian companies, we would have achieved even less. So that I think is and should be troubling for the industry and it should be something rather than just expressing our keenness that we should really discuss who is going to pay for this and it particularly if these are not commercial projects, which at present they're not, how do we resolve that problem? But I want to spend the rest of my time talking about methane because something that the industry certainly can do and must do as we've already heard is to address the issue of methane emissions, which are so-called low-hanging fruit in terms of what can be achieved relatively quickly with a relatively impressive reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. The problem, as has already been referred to, is for me twofold. Firstly, the issue of whether we can agree measurement. There are 
hundreds of very detailed scientific papers on how to measure methane over what time period, um, using what methods, uh, how to how to reconcile bottom-up and top-down me measurement methods. These are not, as it were, arcane academic or scientific discussions. These are crucial if we are going to get agreement on how we treat methane emissions. Uh, I want to come to a question that you, Frederic, asked the Director General on multilateral versus bilateral. I think all of us are very supportive of the EU methane strategy, creating an observatory under UN auspices, um, getting agreement on transparent publication of data. My concern is that this is going to take a long time. It's a huge task. You've got to get a huge number of countries to agree on methodologies, on how they report, on what they're going to disclose. Um, I think eventually we'll get there. But really, we need to do this much more quickly. My suggestion is that we need, or rather, the EU needs to focus on bilateral negotiations with the six countries that account for more than 90% of natural gas emissions. Of course, we shouldn't simply focus on natural gas and methane emissions from oil, and particularly from coal, about which much less is known and very little is written. But I think these bilateral negotiations are going to be essential if we're going to have quick results before we get to the large methane observatory resolution. And of course, those six countries, if we take Norway, they already Norway already has transparent standards which will meet any standards that are set in Brussels. So we're really looking at five countries, Russia, Algeria, Qatar, Nigeria, and the US. And this, I think, is something which is a matter of urgency for these negotiations to start, probably after the legislative proposal is published. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan, uh, also for raising this important issue of methane, uh, which is clearly going to remain high on the agenda. Um, let me turn now to the Q&A session, and we don't have a lot of time ahead of us. So um, I'll start with a question for you, Jonathan, um, about um, an issue that has been touched upon by several of the speakers, which is uh, the uh, energy integration strategy that was presented last year by uh, the European Commission, which broadly explained how gas and electricity can complement each other in different uh, ways and uh, different uses. Now, uh, considering that electrification is uh, the top priority as far as the Commission uh, is concerned, and that there is also a need to phase out fossil gas as quickly as possible, now, what role does that leave for gas in the power sector? Is it mainly as a backup for electric system, um, um, uh, basically relying on, on more renewables? Or do you share GE's uh, point of view that uh, it can also become uh, also a destination fuel uh, in its own right? So, again, I think we need to think about the time period we're talking about. Certainly post 2030, if gas is going to have a major role, it's going to have to be decarbonized. Uh, Martin uh, set out a few ways in which that could happen, but clearly carbon capture and utilization is, and storage are, are crucial here. My concern, as I expressed in my, in my intro, is 
is that we're not very far along there. In other words, we know the technology, the key thing now is who's going to fund this. Um, and what you would imagine is gradually uh, unabated gas must be phased out of power um, because if it, it, and that's, if you like, the easy thing to do. Much harder is uh, phasing it out of other sectors, particularly heating, uh, uh, high temperature heating for industry and residential heating. That's much harder. Um, we must phase unabated gas out of the power sector. But if if we can get the investment in the technologies for um, particularly capture, then we have a chance, it seems to me, of, of moving in the direction Martin was talking about. Um, however, uh, we have a lot of work to do, it seems to me, in that regard. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, uh, and let me turn to uh, Martin O'Neill then. Um, uh, about the comments you made uh, about gas or hydrogen uh, in this case, uh, biomethane as well, being a destination fuel, not just a, a transition fuel. Um, uh, I understand that G-Gas Power is aiming to have 100% um, hydrogen in, in your uh, turbine portfolio by 2030. Uh, can you maybe expand on that? Uh, and also, um, I mean, that seems like a very bullish uh, scenario. So can you tell us maybe what are the assumptions uh, behind this uh, and um, whether these there are projections that you're making purely based on market forces or whether you're making assumptions as well on, on the policy side? Well, thank you for the question. So, GE writes ahead today our portfolio of um, gaseous fuel burning turbines, and today we have a 50% hydrogen capability for combustion in our largest uh, HA class machines. So the, these are large base load block gas turbines for power generation. Um, the encapsulation of that technology is based on research that's been taking place at GE for over two decades. Um, and we published a number of papers and patents in this space as far back as 2003, four and five with the US Department of Energy and we've continued that work with the integration of the Alstom um, intellectual property portfolio, and we've continued to advance that across our complete gas turbine product portfolio, um, the aero derivative, all the classes of machines in the installed base, uh, BE and F technologies, and the newest age class. Um, we continue to work with uh, research and development in this space to advance the percentage of combustion capability as we march towards 100% for 2030. And we're signing commitments with customers. Uh, Long Ridge in Ohio is a, a landmark deal for us in the United States where we will progressively push the needle to that 100% by 2030, working in conjunction with our customer there. And we're excited about the opportunity to show our, our leadership position in this space but just to pick up on points made by other members of the panel, as a decade of action, um, we honestly believe that carbon capture and sequestration doesn't get enough column inches in the discussion and that financing vehicles, a lot of the carbon taxation, um, let's call that incentives, we could also be incentivizing the sequestering of carbon and it may actually be a more economical mechanism 
than pure carbon dioxide taxation itself. So I think that we would want to switch up the narrative to really be more bullish on carbon capture and sequestration. Um, I think in any hydrogen future, which is coming back to the, the key question, in any hydrogen future, European Union will probably be a net importer of hydrogen. And I think that we are often getting caught up in colors of hydrogen when we should be focused on greenhouse gas emissions, which means we want low carbon hydrogen. So blue hydrogen is the the carbon captured equivalent of steam methane reformed gray hydrogen. Again, that points to the fact that carbon capture and sequestration technologies are a certainty. So there is clearly uh, an investment discussion, policy design, and economic incentives that are needed to accelerate CCUS technology and particularly solve for the sequestration part of that. We've been extracting um, carbon hydrocarbons from the planet for centuries and basically putting them back there is a safe, containable, and proven way to contain carbon dioxide emissions. Um, we think that the mix of carbon capture and sequestration now in a decade of action with layered introduction of blue and green hydrogen, low carbon hydrogen, is the future. And believing that for reasons of grid stability and resilience, gas turbine power generation becomes a destination technology, not just a bridge. Thanks, Martin O'Neill. Um, maybe a follow-up question on, on CCS. Um, uh, you said, um, you know, about the, you spoke about the need to develop um, CCS infrastructure around industrial clusters. And this is indeed something that's being considered around places like the Port of Rotterdam or, or in Manchester uh, region. Um, so is, is GE actually involved in any of those projects, putting actual investments as well on the table? Or are you kind of relying on others uh, to do that part uh, of the job? So the, the question of carbon capture and sequestration, as uh, one of the panel members pointed out, is not new. Uh, and we have ample intellectual property relating to that technology from, from our integration with Alstom. Um, basically, we are very much in a partnering mode in this space to prove and demonstrate carbon capture sequestration in power generation. And that means that we're stimulating partnerships with air handling and petrochemical companies so that we can showcase that technology. There are a number of active projects in Europe, um, particularly, that we're excited to participate in and bid on. And I think that ultimately, we are also investing GE um, R&D in advancing um, intellectual property development around um, various capture technologies, which we hope to be able to scale in the future. We think this is vital, a vital path to decarbonization that, that we should be talking about much more because of all of the other problems that we're not talking about on the electricity grid, such as stability, resilience, the intermittent nature of renewables, and the inability of any battery energy storage system 
to back up gigawatts of, of electricity generation at the same time that the European Union intends to retire 35 gigawatts of coal and 28 gigawatts of nuclear generation in the next 15 years. There's a real grid stability problem. We need to take action urgently to ensure that gas thermal generation is there to support the grid. Thanks, uh, Martin. Uh, let me turn maybe now to Maria uh, Spiraki uh, for uh, a view from the European Parliament. Um, it's been quite interesting in the past months um, and, and year or so, uh, the discussions taking place in the European Parliament about gas, for example, when it came to, uh, to the taxonomy uh, recently. I mean, we saw the debates were very polarized. Um, uh, and also divided along an east-west, uh, probably dividing line and uh, north-south. So um, how do you see this debate now evolving um, in, in Parliament in the, uh, in the coming months? Do you see some sort of a, a landing zone for, for the European Parliament to come at some sort of compromise on the how to take a discussion of gas uh, forward, whether in the taxonomy or whether as part of the 10E regulation, uh, what what do you see coming up? I hope, but I'm not quite optimistic because I think that we are fully divided in this regard. And allow me to say that it is, depends not on the on the orientation south, north, etc. It, it depends on the on the energy needs and the, on the roadmap to decarbonization for for each member state. And in this regard, I think that uh, it is important to explain that when we talk about natural gas in, at the very first level, we are talking about short and mid-term solutions. And uh, by saying this, I, I'm, I'm, fully, I'm fully convinced that we can have uh, a, a compromise when it comes to the delegated acts that it comes from the, from the Commission on the, on the taxonomy issue. But allow me to say that the case for, for us is also the affordability of the energy in various member states, including my home country, Greece. As I have already described, the issue of decarbonization in, in, my, in my country is very important and very key. And as we are front runners, we are trying to provide affordable energy and we are also trying to decarbonize our energy mix in a very narrow slot until 2028 and we shut down the, the, the nuclide plants by 2023 when it comes to, to the older nuclide plants. So we need natural gas. At the same time, it is important to, to explain to the people that they are rejecting and to my colleagues that they are rejecting the role of natural gas uh, as a short or mid-term solution. But we don't have enough quantity of, the, of green hydrogen and we need enough quantity of hydrogen in order to decarbonize our energy mix. In this regard, I fully support the term of low carbon uh, hydrogen, which is very important for all of us to, to facilitate the transition. And also, of course, as I have already said, it is important to start working further on CCS and CCU issues. 
I, I insist on the issue of the, of the citizens' concerns. It is very important for us to explain to the people that they are secure uh, solutions in terms of CCS and CCU. And in this regard, it is important to elaborate further with, uh, with research and innovation and to support with a deep funding research and innovation in order to have uh, credible solutions for CCS and CCU that they are on market, but we have to expand this, this kind of credible solutions. And by concluding, I think that we have also insisted on natural gas because we can we can uh, also link it with with the reduction of methane, which is a very a very strong polluter. And I think that the methane can provide us, allow me to say, a quick win if we finally reduce the emissions of methane in in transporting natural gas. Then we have to 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 demonstrate to our citizens, to our people, but we had a quick win in terms of, of reducing greenhouse gas emission and protecting climate change. Thank you, Maria Spiraki. Uh, let me turn maybe to Jan Ingwersen now uh, for a question um, on, the, uh, on the taxonomy. I suppose you've been following these debates quite uh, closely. Uh, and, and the sometimes polarized uh, debates uh, that this question has created in the European Parliament and also in the European Council. Um, and when looking at the taxonomy, which is supposed to um, uh, promote investments into green, future-proof uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, how, how do you believe the taxonomy can help do that when it comes to, uh, to gas? How can it help um, investments in, in future-proof assets and, and avoid uh, investments potentially going into uh, assets that risk being stranded in 10 or 15 years from now? Thanks for the question. Um, maybe allow me uh, uh, to, to address some of the other issues and I'll come back to, to this issue. I, I think I agree with Jonathan on, the, of course, we, we have, have a huge work in front of us, but I think the decarbonization and and the climate agenda is a is a common task for all of us and and the, i mean it's it's a huge uh, challenge for both uh, electricity and for gas and for the whole energy sector but i'm optimistic i i think i think we we now see also the commission is coming in with new regulation i think there has been a lot in the past there's been a lot of talking now we see concrete uh, regulation which uh, will help uh, us uh, go this way funding is also part of that the CO2 price, as Mrs. Spirakit mentioned, has now today um, exceeded 50 euros. I think two years ago, or two, two three years ago, it was uh, a bit below five euro per ton. So I think uh, that is also creating the incentives in the market. And then, not, uh, uh, last but not least, that I think the, the industry is mobilized and, and uh, ready to do what it takes. Uh, at ANSAC, we have our roadmap uh, for, for gas grids to 2050, and uh, there we are foreseeing these steps and have been foreseeing this for, for more than uh, the last couple of years. So, um, furthermore, on this about the need for, for gas in, power, in the power sector, we have developed joint scenarios with NSOE showing that the increased intake of, in particular, intermittent uh, renewables, wind and solar, will increase the need for backup and will increase the need for gas because gas is the best alternative. Um, uh, and then, of course, an alternative which should be and will be decarbonized over time. We need that for resilience, for, for avoiding the blackout or brownouts, 
uh, in the in the European electricity sector. And then regarding the the taxonomy, I think the the, the polarized discussion that we see here is a little bit of seen from my perspective a pity. First of all. Um, Gas is a even as fossil gas, even as natural gas, is a better alternative than coal and lignite and oil. And uh, I think that is not really being recognized by fighting gas or being opposed to gas. You um, you you're also then basically uh, uh, supporting uh, more polluting fuels. Um, electricity will be able to do a big part of the job, maybe plus fifty percent, but. Uh, and, and in that 50%, there is also a big decarbonization challenge in itself. And then additionally, you need to cover the other uh, more around 50%, and gas will play a, an important role there. So uh, I think that the, in the t taxonomy discussion, that this should be reflected. Of course, it should be ambitious, but sometimes the, the ideas of the idealistic solution, the perfect solution, might be the enemy of the best solution. So hereby, my, my uh, encouragement to the opponents to gas is um, let's, let's cooperate on not on fight, uh, on, let's not fight the gas, or let, please do not fight the gas, let's cooperate. How do we ensure uh, a decarbonization of gas over time, taking into account huge um, investments are needed, Funding is needed. It's a big challenge. However, how do we do it? I think is the most uh, pertinent issue. And uh, the taxonomy should reflect that gas, even in a period of time uh, in some countries, is the best possible um, uh, way to, uh, to, to, to put the climate agenda higher on the priority list. Hey, thanks. Uh, let me turn to Martin O'Neill about uh, a question about retrofitting um, of existing gas power plants uh, to hydrogen. Is that something that you've evaluated um, uh, in Europe, the potential to do that um, uh, retrofitting of existing uh, gas power plants? And also, what would be the cost of doing this? Uh, would it be cheaper, for example, than a new build, or are the two kind of comparable? Thank you. So I think that uh, retrofitting of, of hydrogen capability into existing gas turbine technology is entirely plausible. Um, first of all, many of our gas turbines already have the ability to ingest significant percentages of hydrogen, Syn gas, uh, and I'll say low BTU fuels. Um, we've actually got 6 million hours of demonstrated operation globally um, with hydrogen and hydrogen-like fuels. So we're experienced in this. We know how to handle and deal with it. It requires blending skids. It requires some combustion tweaking, some controls, um, optimization. Occasionally, we would need to refit or change out hardware, particularly around the uh, combustion loop. And uh, basically, our intention is to be able to retrofit as increasing percentages of hydrogen become available. Um, I think really the issue now is is the time horizon uh, and the attractiveness of those in terms of capital expenditure. Uh, most gas turbine installed assets uh, generally undergo a major overhaul. Um, 
depending on usage, every third, fourth, fifth, sixth year. And within that window, with a marginal increase in cost for some of the technologies I pointed to, you would be able to increase the percentage of hydrogen ingestion in the installed base units. And again, just to remind people, you know, with 27,000 terawatt hours of, of gas production on the grid every year, um, really the discussion about greenhouse gas uh, reduction and abatement should be about the installed base as well as protecting for new units for all the reasons that have been outlined here, um, not just for transition fuel, but also destination and for grid stability. So um, I think there's a lot of good and exciting activity that's going to take place in, in the installed base. Thanks, Martin. Um, very quickly, because we're reaching the end, uh, I'm afraid, of, of this conference, a quick word from each one of you to sort of summarize the main idea that you would like our viewers to take away uh, with them from this conference. And we can stay with you, Martin uh, O'Neill, uh, for uh, quick uh, concluding thoughts. Very quick, and thank you, first of all. Um, gas, force multiplier for renewables growth, essential, essential producer for stable and resilient power generation and destination technology for 2050. Thank you. Um, Maria Spiraki, your concluding thoughts. Thank you. Well, we have to use gas as a transition fuel, and we have to invest heavily in order to decarbonize gas, in order to have efficient and uh, enough uh, adequate uh, quantity of hydrogen, of low-carbon hydrogen. Gas is a fuel that we can invest on. Thank you. Yanni Wersen, your own concluding thoughts. Uh, I'm happy about the acknowledgement that, that gas in a decarbonized form will be a part of the future. I hope that in the uh, hydrogen and gas decarbonization package that the Commission is uh, going to launch later this year, that we really here for the first time will see a merged regulation reflecting the sector integration ambitions that we have, uh, that we all have for the energy sector. Thank you. Thanks. And Jonathan uh, Stern to conclude. Thank you. Um, I think if we're going to move quickly, which we'll need to to meet our targets, we have to really stop quarreling about what are minor uh, issues. We've got to agree, let's do simple things quickly. Simple things to me are reducing methane emissions and negotiating very quickly with our suppliers to accept the fact that, uh, as somebody else said, it may not be a perfect solution, but it's one which can reduce our emissions in order to help us meet our 2030 targets. Thank you. Right, I think this wraps up for today's event. Uh, big thanks to GE for supporting it. Thank you as well to our panelists for taking the time to be with us today, as well as to our viewers for joining us. If you missed the beginning of this debate, you can watch it again on YouTube in a minute. And if you would like to know more about upcoming events at your active, please visit our website, events.youractive.com, to learn more. I hope to see you again soon. In the meantime, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye.